0: The TNT shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at TNTradio.live. Using science to debunk myths. From the pandemic to climate fraud. Thanks for listening to Sky Dragon Slaying on TNT Radio.
1: Hi, welcome back to Sky Dragon Slaying with myself, Joe John O'Sullivan, CEO of Principia Scientific International, my co-host. Canadian astrophysicist uh, Joe Postmer. We have been doing a deep dive, obviously, in the big news of the week was the, the climate conference in Dubai, the COP28 conference of the parties. And uh, TNT has covered it really well. Mark Morano has been out there for us talking about it. And uh, on his show yesterday, I believe it's Steve Gorham. Steve Gorham is a speaker, author, and researcher on environmental issues, as well as being an engineer and business executive. He's frequently invited to guest on radio shows and television shows Uh, is freelance writer. He's the executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America, a non-political association of scientists, engineers, and citizens dedicated to informing Americans about the realities of climate science and energy economics. And his organization is also affiliated with the International Climate Science Coalition. Hi, Steve. Great to have you on the show, finally.
2: Hey, John. great 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 to join you again. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it's great that uh, you're available because we really tried to tie this up a couple of weeks ago uh, before the climate conference um you know the meeting of the so-called great and the good but they're really just a bunch of cult members at the church of uh, globalism and climate alarm and uh, you know it's great to talk to a fellow skeptic somebody you can see through the flim flam and um you know give give me your um give us a flavor of your impression of what's been going on in dubai
2: well, it is a remarkable situation. We we had uh, uh, dignitaries from all over the world flying into uh, Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Um, there were uh, we had King Charles III, Bill Ga- billionaire Bill Gates, uh, John Kerry, uh, the United States uh, climate envoy. We uh, had a U.S. a big U.S. delegation led by uh, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, many other dignitaries, uh, Fatih Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency. And, uh, you know, they all took a a, a jet flight out there, either a a private or commercial aircraft. And when you fly fly by jet and you burn jet fuel, for every pound of jet fuel you burn, you emit three pounds of carbon dioxide. And then they all jumped into uh, limousines or taxis to get to the Uh, Dubai's Expo City. Uh, Some may have taken electric vehicles, but those EVs were charged by electricity in the United Arab Emirates, 82% of which was produced by natural gas. Uh, 80,000 people on jets. So, this is literally the biggest carbon dioxide emitting event in the world this year. Uh, It is a remarkable uh, uh, bit of hypocrisy, uh, hypocrisy. And, you know, the sad thing about this is it's not going to do anything measurable for global temperatures, uh, despite all the efforts.
1: Yeah, it, what struck us is the fact that uh, right at the out, even before the conference got going, even before it got growing, it, it kind of self sabotage because the COP28 president, Sultan Ahmed al Jaber. He said quite in a speech that uh, he, he said there's no science to back up the, the, the claim that a phase out of so-called fossil fossil fuels is going to do anything to reduce global warming, to, to, to keep it to 1.5 degrees. He said eliminating so-called fossil fuels would, would put us all back into the Stone Age. Again, that that's from the chairman, you know, the president of the COP twenty eight. So again, it's a divided uh, clique now, isn't it? They they seem to be struggling. They they are not getting what they wanted. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I believe it was uh, twenty fifteen. They talked about compulsory, like mandatory regulations. Uh, the outcome in this particular conference, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, was just an agreement to do they, the best they can. You know, nothing really tangible at all, was it?
2: Yeah, there really wasn't. They they couldn't get much agreement. The the big uh, thing was supposedly that transition away from <clears throat> hydrocarbon fuels away from coal oil and gas they call them fossil fuels as well. uh that's supposedly the big agreement but um you know we really haven't seen any of this as you mentioned this is uh the conference of the parties 28. the first one began in 1995. and so if you look at what has happened globally uh since 1995 uh, the big measures, the the rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide, has been rising for uh, all of that period of time, and it's actually it been slightly accelerating. So all these COP conferences and all the uh, renewable efforts aren't having any effect on rising atmospheric carbon dioxide. Uh, the second thing is, if you look at energy, uh, global energy consumption has in has tripled since 1965. And the rate of of, uh, global energy consumption has accelerated since the year 2001. Uh, And in the last two decades, the world has spent uh, about $5 trillion on renewable. And we've installed more than 300,000 wind turbines worldwide. But we're still using about 81% of, uh, of energy from coal, oil and natural gas. And that's the same percentage as it was in 1999. So the COP conference could best be uh, characterized as futile or, or uh, pointless. There really is, they're really having no effect either on carbon dioxide emissions or uh, global energy use. Yeah. Steve, your
1: background uh, in business, I just want to make a frank, just frame this in terms of common sense thinking. Your background is in business. And normally you want to have a cost benefit analysis of any kind of major proposal to shift the world economy away from these hydrocarbons and to put us into so-called renewables. Um, As somebody with a business brain, Steve, is this economically viable at all?
2: No, it isn't. And uh, my book Green Breakdown talks about that. Uh, the world is pushing to get to net zero right now. and I should say the wealthy nations of the world, uh, the United States, Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and a few others, all want to get rid of uh, hydrocarbon fuels, coal oil and natural gas by 2050, uh, get our carbon dioxide emissions down to close to zero and, and everything we do emits carbon dioxide. You can't uh, perform any function without doing that. And this is as this is beyond a reach out goal. This is more like a wish and a prayer, it is not going to happen. And so in, in green breakdown, I talk about how this is going to break down. The world's not going to get close. Uh, people is not going to happen. And so in, in green breakdown, I talk about how this is going to break down. The world's not going to get close. Uh, people are going to push back and eventually, uh, we're going to get back to sensible energy policies and get rid of this net zero. But right now we've, we've reached a new level of uh, climate frenzy, if you will. And, um, uh, uh, all these folks are coming back, pushing for this, thinking that they're doing something good for the planet, which is uh, very, very misguided.
1: Yeah. Just for the sake of argument, if we kept the oil in the ground and we did oil, how would that affect, you know, everyday life? I mean, what products would we have to compromise on? You know, what, what's your thought on that?
2: Well, about 91 uh, percent of transportation fuel comes from derivatives from oil right now. Another 4 percent comes from natural gas about 3% of, of the world's uh, transportation fuel comes from biofuels, and about 1% is from electricity. So we are a long, long, long way from from uh, these alternative fuels doing anything significant. The other thing I think that's interesting is if, if you look at the delegates uh, that went to this conference, they've all got a smartphone. And the smartphones, of course, are made by plastic from oil or natural gas. Uh, They're all wearing suits, ties, shoes, and underwear, and other clothing. And most of that is composed of synthetic fibers from hydrocarbons. Uh, They've been dining on food produced by farms that use uh, about half of that comes from synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which is created from ammonia, which is produced by natural gas or by coal in China. Uh, And about 80% of our food uses, uh, 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 uses tractors to produce. Uh, which, which run on diesel fuel primarily. So hydrocarbons drive our modern society. There's, and there's really no, the, the idea that we can get rid of them is, is really uh, very misguided.
3: They're really trying to set themselves up as some sort of, I I mean, I guess this term is used all the time, but when you describe that, you know, and explain, you know, the luxuries that these people get to enjoy, they get the luxury of private jets and of the finest quality food uh, at these events. They're really trying to set themselves up as some sort of elite, and then the rest of us are going to be denied any access to easy, cheap energy, which is, you know, fossil fuels, hydrocarbons going to be denied that altogether so it'll really set up a, a complete uh a complete divorce i mean we, we if we get to that level we wouldn't even be able to interact with these people anymore they'd be flying around in what would eventually appear to us you know as, as magical ships they'd have their private jets and we'd have nothing they really are trying to set themselves up as some sort of elite godlike class or something above us aren't they
2: well, well, they are. And and if you consider the developing world, so, so some of the statements made in the conference were crazy. A U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, said we shouldn't allow coal plants anywhere. And uh, that is just an absurd statement. So today, the world gets 35 percent of its electricity from coal-fired power plants. It's the biggest source of electricity. There are about 4,000 coal plants out there, and the world is building another thousand, either in construction or planning. Uh, Yet we have a tremendous shortage of electricity globally. 700 million people don't have access to electricity. And there are literally hundreds of hospitals in poor nations that don't have electricity. You know, imagine a hospital without air conditioning, without electricity for an operating room. Uh, Just remarkable. And then uh, we have about another 2 billion people that have blackouts or brownouts every day or every other day. So if you're in the United States and you have an air conditioner, that air conditioner uses more electricity on average than a third of the world's people. Uh, it's just remarkable what, what Mr. Kerry has said. It has, it has <laughs> no concern for the people of the world. He is so uh, so uh, invested in climatism, the fear of man-made warming, that he doesn't really care what happens to people in the developing world. Very, very sad situation
3: didn't he also say that we need to stop farming due to the climate change it it uh, causes which is going to cause people to starve so his solution to stopping people from starving is to stop farming because farming causes climate change which he thinks will cause people to starve is isn't that something you also just said
2: too (laughs) well that's another yeah we've got we had uh uh this thing in Ceylon where they or in uh sri lanka where they stopped using uh uh synthetic nitrogen and their their agricultural output went down 40 percent and then they got rid of the the head of the country um in netherlands they're trying to make they're trying to get rid of cattle and they're trying to get rid of a uh, use of a uh, nitrogen fertilizer as well because of uh, nitrogen dioxide which which is a, a greenhouse gas uh yeah there's there's going to be more and more pressure on agriculture and and again uh just a, just crazy sorts of stuff um, in New Zealand, they're experimenting with uh, uh, all sorts of different uh, breeding for cattle and different foods to try and get the methane emissions down from from cattle. <laughs> there was even a situation in Australia um, about a decade ago when I believe they were offering carbon credits. Uh, they have these. Uh, they have what they call a, a feral camels roaming Australia, about a million of them that emit methane from the nose end and the tail end. And they were actually offering carbon credits for a while. They passed a law for uh, for killing camels. So I I, th- I don't think that's in an effect anymore. But uh, there's all all kinds of wild and crazy things from this uh, from this superstition of uh, human caused warming.
1: Yeah, one of the things I picked up on, Steve, you probably picked up on it too, is this uh, the, the the grifting going on. They're talking about the uh, climate reparations. Every climate conference, yeah. they talk about reparations for loss and damage. Um, The talk is of a fund, creating a fund, a $100 billion fund to be donated annually by the world's wealthiest countries. We should be, you know, the US, the UK, you know, all all the English speaking nations, apparently we're the mega rich countries. We can afford, apparently, to give away $100 billion every year to the poorer countries to escape uh, poverty. Again, you know, it's something that uh, analysts, somebody like... um, Bjorn Lundberg has said this is climate fantasy. You know, it's uh, a fantastical budget is needed. Two to three trillion, according to Lundberg, is needed per year, really, to to mitigate on the so-called climate damage. Do you get the feeling that, like I do, that uh, this is akin to the foreign aid budget? This is kind of black budget where money goes. And mysteriously, some of it ends up in the pockets of those who really shouldn't get it.
2: Well, it is. It, it really is a... Uh... It's a Faustian bargain. And what the wealthy countries are telling the developing nations is that they can't use coal and they, they shouldn't be using oil and gas to develop their economies. So if you look right now at, at, at the nations around the poorer nations of the world, renewable energy is providing only a tiny part of the energy consumed. Uh, in Africa, only 2.4% of the of the uh, energy is, is uh, non-hydro-renewable. India only 5.9 percent Middle East 0.7 percent Southeast Asia 6.3 percent of their energy and so you, you wonder you say well why would these uh and, and and you know if you look at some of the other statistics uh in in the poor in the United States we have the highest rate of vehicle use in the world we have about one for every every person in Europe it's about one vehicle for every two people but you go to poor nations it's it's one vehicle for every 20 people. Uh, the wealthy nations use about twenty times as much plastic as as uh, the poor nations. So when you when you look at that, you say, "Well, why would all these poor nations be attending the COP conference?" And the answer, as you say, is uh, they've been promised a big wealth transfer. Uh, they will get all this money if they forego these uh, these fuels. Matter of fact, two years ago, uh, India asked for a trillion dollars a year <laughs> to be transferred. Uh, to help them get to net zero by 2070. And today about 25% of all financial aid to the developing world is now tied to climate-related projects. That's up from about 4% uh, in 2005. That, those numbers are from uh, Mr. Lomborg. So you're right, it's it's kind of a Faustian bargain. Come, come to our climate conference. Don't use uh, coal oil and natural gas. We'll transfer all this money to you uh, but it it really isn't happening that the, the uh, wealthy nations really aren't aren't uh, coming up with all the money for the uh, poor nations. so it's not working very well. Yeah, I,
1: as you say, Steve, I think people are beginning to wake up. Uh, we'll be right back this is TNT radio.
0: Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a a statement that I saw
4: last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, web spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson, and one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, there has been a little bit of a tail-off with people buying into the vaccine narrative, and she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called misinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for people to really grab and get their heads around, so that's not really taking off the way they want to either. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know what? When the water crisis comes, people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water. And if you don't have water for a few days at a time, you'll know all about it. So maybe, you know, we're hypothesizing a little bit about what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a world economic forum type narrative. Could this be what it is?
0: Locked in loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk TNT radio
5: affordable housing we can build that sustainable housing we can build that at MIT modular we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design cost and functionality our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702. Or read more at MITModular.com.
0: MIT Modular. We can build that. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
1: Hi, welcome back. Uh, We're talking to Steve Gorham. Uh, He's written a few books. Um, Steve, your book, Green Box Rethinking Sustainable Development, uh, interests me because at the moment, we're seeing a bit of a crisis in the green movement. I'm particularly looking at uh, the EV market, EV vehicles, EV cars. Tesla, they just announced a massive recall of their vehicles. Um, You know, they got the new truck out. It's not, uh, it's a big disappointment, isn't it?
2: Yeah, the, uh, the uh, electric vehicle market has been penetrating the world. Uh, last year, about 14% of light vehicle sales were electrics across the world. In the U.S., lower about 8%. But it appears that we've kind of hit a speed bump this year, if you will, at least in the United States. Our uh, EV mm-hmm. inventories are up about 300% over last year. Uh, Ford Motor is losing between 40,000 and 60,000 dollars on each electric vehicle sold. They're projecting a four and a half billion dollar loss this year. Ford and uh, GM have uh, decided to scale back uh, their uh, EV introductions and their goals. And so at least in the U.S., the early adopter phase is over. All the people that want cool Teslas uh, seem to have one. (laughs) But now we've got uh, folks that are, uh, you know, they're worried about the cost of electric vehicles, which is quite a bit more. Uh, If they live in an apartment, they don't want to run an extension cord over the public sidewalk to try and charge their vehicle. Mm. Uh, We have problems with insurance as well. In the United States, uh, electric vehicle insurance is about 70% higher than an an internal combustion engine. And in the United Kingdom, it's getting very tough to get EV insurance. So there's a lot of stories about uh, 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 companies not offering to insure EVs. And the price is up to about 5,000 uh, pounds or uh, per uh, vehicle now for, for a year to insure in, an EV. And one of the big problems there is collisions. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have a collision and you damage the battery in any way, then you've got a, a $20,000 uh, replacement cost, which, uh, which makes it very tough. Uh, our rental company Hertz in the United States is saying that the cost of repairing EVs uh, is making it uh, unprofitable to use them. Uh, for their car rentals, So there's there's some issues piling up. Again, I'm not opposed to electric vehicles, but the idea that if we all buy an electric vehicle, we could stop the oceans from rising. That's the really crazy idea.
3: Well, yeah, I think yeah. even Canada has signed on, you know, we're a, obviously a first world country. <laughs> I think we've signed on that by 2030 or some date that's coming soon that, that um, internal combustion engines are going to be completely banned. How is that is that even possible oh, going to happen do that? in canada no that's not going to happen but they put these things on the books well i mean what's going to happen when that when the date comes in, and passes and not only well, that even, you know no oh, go yeah, ahead yeah. yeah it's 2035 it's
2: 2035 in canada what's even worse is right. evs don't work very well in cold weather i was speaking at a conference last year met a guy whose wife had a tesla they lived in cleveland it got down to 10 degrees fahrenheit Uh, I don't know what that is, Celsius, about minus uh, 10 or
3: 15. That's warm and balmy for Canada.
2: Literally, the (laughs) Tesla would not charge at 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, They didn't have a heated garage. Now, I'm in Chicago. I've got a heated garage, but I don't want to heat my garage all winter. That'd be very, very expensive. And in Canada, so in Canada, if you don't have a heated garage, you will not be able to charge your vehicle from about December to February. But oh, yeah, we got to We got to get rid of all those uh, gasoline cars.
3: <laughs> well, and, the, and can I the know. grid? Can the grid even handle this? Like can the electrical grid itself? Could it even handle charging that many, many cars?
2: Yeah, well, that's another problem. In addition to that, we have a lot of uh, at least states in the United States pushing to get rid of uh, natural gas stoves and go to electric stoves as well, which adds a, a, another big increment of uh, of charging. But the craziest thing is this thing about electric trucks. In California, uh, effective January first, California has a new regulation called um, the Advanced Clean Fleets (ACF), and it says for many different truck classes—these are heavy trucks now, not little ones—as of uh, the first of January, if you put a new truck into service, uh, you have to—it uh, has to be an electric truck, and so. <laughs> This has a million problems, but but one of these is the charging of the grid. They just set up a big charging uh, station in California with uh, funded with government money and and other things that can charge thirty two big rigs at once. But you look at the electricity draw, and if you had thirty two trucks charging, it's as big as a city of two hundred thousand people. That's the amount of electricity <laughs> it would use, like San Bernardino. You know, an entire new city. Uh, these numbers are 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 way too big. They're never going to happen, and the grid's not going to be able to handle it. But nevertheless, so we're going to push forward and make all these trucks electric. It's uh, it's it's crazy stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve, do you think that the powers that be um, are, are that stupid? That they do you think they really don't know that these issues, infrastructure issues, are going to make make or break the whole you know EV market?
2: The ideology of climatism is powerful. And I think most believe it, you know, but Al Gore's been an environmentalist since the 1970s. I think he probably believes he's got to save the planet. Uh, obviously, the, the fear of man-made warming can be used many ways to justify policies and and uh, boost incomes and, gets all, all, and, and develop whole industries, all sorts of other things. But there's a tremendous belief in this stuff and uh it's just very very powerful it's captured government leaders and so they're pushing forward with it uh despite the fact that um you know what the the result of, of trying to get to net zero is going to be uh, higher energy and electricity prices it's going to be a uh, uh, blackouts electricity blackouts it's going to be a loss of freedom because they want to take away your gasoline uh, pickup truck or your gas stove and we're going to have transnational energy crises by the way, Australia is, is kind of an example of this. About two decades ago, the electricity prices in Australia were amongst the world's lowest, but Australia now gets about 20% of its electricity from wind and your electricity prices have risen faster than inflation, and you're now amongst the world's highest. Mm-hmm. And Australia, as I understand it, has no nuclear plants and you get only 6% of your electricity from uh, hydroelectric power, which is which is very clean and reliable. And so, when you retire all those coal plants, you're going to be on, uh, you're going to have trouble keeping your electricity on. Uh, it's going to be a big, big issue. So, um, you know, this is this is uh, just another another situation where leaders are believing this stuff, and that we're going to have to learn the hard way.
1: Yeah, another thing that uh, concerns me, Steve, is uh, energy security in terms of, of nation states. You know, the idea we're, we're living through troubled times now, We're on the precipice of World War Three. know we've seen with the war in ukraine we're seeing the conflict in in israel and gaza you know so much of our outsourcing of of manufacturing and energy uh, raw materials it leaves us vulnerable in our particular nations don't we the us and the uk over here in uk we're seeing that um it's very tenuous you know outer mongolia in china is the principal location for mining lithium Uh, down in the congo cobalt is a key resource there and yeah. You know, if we have international conflicts, Steve, we're going to struggle, aren't we?
2: Well, that's the thing about electric vehicles. In, in places like Europe and the United States, people buy these electric cars and they go, wow, aren't these clean? They don't emit carbon dioxide, but they don't see the supply chain behind this. And uh, the International Energy Agency points out that electric vehicles use seven times the metals, I'm sorry, six times the metals of a, a gasoline or diesel car graphite, copper, nickel, manganese, cobalt, and lithium. And as you say, those come from developing nations, primarily from the mines. And then uh, most of the metals processing of these is done in China. And so you have a situation, you mentioned the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the leading producer of cobalt in the world, cobalt ore, and they use child labor and they use forced labor down there. They get the ore out of the hills, they ship it to China where it's processed, and China has vast areas that have been polluted. There's a place called Rare Earth Lake where uh, the pictures show if you if you stand there you can look in every direction and see this this polluted environment which from from metal tailings. And then that's uh, refined into cobalt and other metals and it comes to the United States or Europe and wow everybody can get it and drive their Tesla but they don't see this chain of social and environmental damage that happens all over the world from electric vehicles. Even in the case of of carbon dioxide emissions, most electric cars are new. And when you produce that battery, you emit a lot of carbon dioxide. So on net right now, electric vehicles have caused caused more carbon dioxide emissions than gasoline vehicles because they're still new vehicles. We have to drive them for several years before they even break even. So uh, all of this is very much distorted and, again, uh, uh, driven by the fear of man-made global warming
1: yeah i've also read to back up what you're saying uh estimates that you would need to drive eighty thousand miles on an ev just to even come yeah. out to put you back on zero uh yeah i mean ice vehicles the the, the idea that um these old diesel engines these petrol driven cars they're easily fixed are not they they can be fixed you can do your own mechanics and they're, they're still a wonderful second-hand car market booming You see that with EV market, the EV market secondhand is just dead, isn't it? Nobody wants a used EV, do they?
2: Well, I still I still think it's growing, but it's going to it it is running into a lot of problems now, and um, and I think that price gap is going to stay for a while because these these all these metals that need to be mined are expensive. Uh, You can't crank up uh, the output of global mines very quickly. Uh, if we were to shift over to all EVs, you'd be increasing the amount of metals and and global mining by uh, three, five, and ten times, depending on the metal. And the International Energy Agency says, uh, from start to finish, they they take the example of a copper mine. It takes like sixteen years from first concept until until you can build the uh, get output from the mine. So we're a long, long way from having the metals to supply these things. Um, so again let's let's let uh, the market take its course people want to get EVs and and they hey if they uh they've got a charger in the garage and they drive short distances it can be a low cost but uh let's let's not think that we're going to uh we're going to uh, make the storms less severe if we all drive an EV again uh let's not force people to switch
1: yeah yeah this, this is again the, the the group thing involved in all this you probably agree Steve it's uh from the top down it's a it managed economy it's like uh the, the the old Soviet Union you plan the economy over so many decades and people conform whereas the free market we, we'd yeah. be allowed to do what we want do you get they the impression do. this is an ultra left-wing agenda all the time
2: yeah it is a little bit let me mention something else that came out of the conference um Former senator and and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton spoke at at COP twenty eight, and she wants to start counting climate deaths. Mm. Uh, she learned from COVID nineteen. If you remember COVID nineteen, you could look online and see the deaths every day of people across the world. Well, she wants to do that with climate as well. Uh, you know that's a tremendous uh, would be in everybody's eye and a great way to message on how terrible climate is. And so she talked about heat waves in Europe and how many people died the last year. And she doesn't have numbers from other areas of the world. The problem with that is that, uh, you know, when I speak to groups, I always ask them, you know, which is worse for people, cold months or warm months? And the audiences typically get it right. Uh, The the cold months are worse. Uh, The flu seasons, according to the, the international health organizations, are um, from October to March in the Northern Hemisphere, the cold months, and in the South uh, from June to August or so, is, are those uh, the flu season during the cold months there. If you look at, at when COVID cases hit in every nation of the world, more people got COVID during the cold months. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many papers that show that more people die during the cold months than warm months. And so it's, it's clear that if we have a little bit of warming, again, Mr. Lomborg has pointed this out we're going to have few pe- fewer people die across the world. <laughs> and yeah. I always like to say, uh, you know, where do people in the United States retire? Do they retire to Saskatchewan and, and Alaska? No, they all retire to Florida, <laughs> Texas, and Arizona. Aren't they foolish? Don't they What's know our good- own U.S. government says warm climates are dangerous so well know. that's such a good
3: point right because every metric does show that a warmer climate and it's not just better for humans it's also actually better for the animals too and for the well, it is, yeah. wild wild animals and these are well-known metrics they're obvious they can be looked at you know anyone who would agree to it so and yes born yeah, lumber says you know a little bit of warm and then also actually the increase of co2 is actually great for the environment it's good for plants it it's helping plants grow so this entire narrative that they spin is completely inverted to reality isn't it
2: why do they do yeah, that yeah there's another factor too if you look at how, where warming has occurred we've had about one degree of warming since 1880 since we've had thermometers one degree celsius not very much, but you look at where the warming has occurred, very little has been uh, at the equator. There's been more in the temperate regions, and then there's been more warming uh, in the, in the uh, Arctic in particular, not so much in the Antarctic, but more in the poles. So that means uh, in the areas that have been cold, we're getting more warmer temperatures, we're getting longer growing seasons. So, so the warming actually gives creates a better environment for people across the world but again, yeah, the narrative, as you say, is is fun to try and uh, show doom and gloom and and uh, doesn't make much sense. Yeah,
6: and yeah, you and mentioned that. Uh,
2: carbon... Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Mentioned what? Yeah, well, you mentioned carbon dioxide. And uh, uh, that's maybe the craziest thing of all carbon calling carbon dioxide a pollutant. Yeah, we all we all emit about two pounds of carbon dioxide a day, maybe uh, 1.6 kilograms a day when we exhale. And again, a question for your audience, Um, what do cannabis growers know that uh, the Environmental Protection Agency doesn't know? Uh, And the answer is that carbon dioxide is green. Any uh, marijuana grower with his or her salt anywhere in the world is pumping carbon dioxide into the greenhouse to make their crop grow bigger and faster. And if you take a look at the world's top 45 food crops, uh, that produce 95% of our food, they all grow bigger and faster with higher levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. And in uh, uh, Green Breakdown, I've actually got a uh, a map in there. Uh, uh, scientists at uh, CSIRO, I believe in Australia, uh, using satellite data pointed out that the earth is greening. Over the last two decades, we, we have about 10 or 15% more foliage, and they attribute that to higher levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. So literally, CO2 is the best compound we could put into the environment for the biosphere.
1: Yeah, and just to add to your point, Steve, that the, the idea also we should go in for carbon capture and storage. They talk about billion-dollar projects to for carbon capture and storage. I think nature already provided us with the best product for that, and that's just trees, isn't it? Trees do a wonderful job capturing CO2
2: and giving us fresh oxo- oxygen. It's incredible, isn't it? they do you know and when we got big government we can do all sorts of things that are completely useless uh nobody would be we got we got battles in the Middle East over building carbon dioxide pipelines nobody would be building these there's no market for this stuff uh this is like unicorn ranching I mean it just there's no value in it (laughs) but we got these governments just shoveling money to do these foolish things climate-wise and so uh, billions and billions of dollars. So people are trying to build carbon dioxide transportation pipelines and capture carbon dioxide. Absolutely no market value for that stuff, except maybe a little bit of soft drinks sort of to put back in the ground to uh, push uh, petroleum to the surface. Uh, again, there, there is right now a tremendous global distortion going on of wasted resources, uh we have uh, 700 million people without electricity we got about the same number that that don't, don't have access to clean water uh we have two billion people without uh, proper sanitation yet we're spending money trying to reduce carbon dioxide just just a, a big big waste
1: yeah steve it's a fascinating conversation and we're going to pick up on on it again shortly this is tnt radio
0: De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective.
1: There are big
4: changes going on in the overall global weather pattern over the next 15 to 20 days, exactly opposite of what happened last year. The United States overall is going to become a big focal point for winter weather. Europe also, again, once we get past this transition from the 20th through the 30th. So Europe is warmed up, but a lot of cold is coming, it looks to me, like January, February. And the US may have another bout with Snowmageddon, especially in the eastern part of the United States. But this is all part of this climate hypothesis I've developed due to underwater volcanic activity. And I've gone over this a couple of times and it's pretty hard to do it in a minute or two, so I'm not going to review it. But what we said over a month ago was that there was going to be a lot of damaging storms from the El Nino this year, The Gulf of Mexico up the East Coast. And we got another one coming. We already saw Florida blasted back on November 17th. Well, here comes the next one. But they also said, look out for the hurricane season from hell next hurricane season. That's already on my radar. And if you want to read about it, you go to weatherbell.com. It's not behind the paywall. And you can take a look at what I'm looking at with that. But none of this is part of man-made climate change. That's why I like getting out in front. Because if you look at the readings that I've been doing and actually look at what I've been writing about all this, you find that there is a reason behind it and it has nothing to do with CO2 emissions. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got.
6: Right now, the forgotten poor are waiting for healing and care for life-saving medical care for a chance to live with dignity and hope. They are waiting for Mercy Ships and you. Mercy Ships is the largest floating civilian hospital in the world with volunteer medical staff and crew who donate their time to save lives. And now, as our newest state-of-the-art hospital ship sets sail, Mercy Ships will double our ability to reach children and adults who need us now.
3: Without the work of Mercy Ships, these patients don't have another option.
6: Mercy Ships is answering the call to serve suffering people who have nowhere else to turn. Together, we are going to some of the world's most desperate places and bringing a wave of hope and healing to those who need it most. To learn more about this wave of hope, go to mercyships.org today. Using
0: science to debunk myths from the pandemic to climate fraud. Thanks for listening to sky dragon slaying on TNT radio.
1: Now, welcome back. Uh, During the break, we were having a little off off camera speak uh, with Steve Gorham. Steve Gorham's uh, doing very well. He's got his book out and, uh, He's a successful speaker, analyst, researcher on environmental issues. Uh, well, he's an engineer as well and a business executive. He knows his stuff. Steve, just just give us a flavor of how the book sales are going. How, how's that going for you?
2: Yeah, Green Breakdown is doing pretty well. Last uh, This week, it again made number one on uh, energy policy on Amazon, their category. It bounces up and down a little bit, but it really is a fun book. It is uh, It's a complete discussion of the supposed energy transition, from uh, coal, oil, natural gas to renewables. And I go through some energy history first, Then I talk about utilities, I talk about home appliances, I talk about electric vehicles and other vehicles, um, aircraft, shipping, heavy, uh, heavy transportation, heavy industry. I talk about the recent uh, transnational energy crisis, as I call it in Europe. Uh, But the book is fun as well. There's about 150 color sidebars in it. It's a uh, a soft cover uh, color book. And it has all kinds of crazy headlines of, of things going on. For example, there's an article written in the New York Times saying that to solve the climate crisis, we should all mate with short people. I never really <laughs> got into the details on that. but And there's another, there's a professor in Sweden who is urging people to uh, eat human flesh to uh, uh, solve the climate crisis. And that's in a sidebar as well. And then we have this one, uh, we had a cosmetic surgeon in California who was uh, taking human flesh from his uh, his cosmetic surgeries, and he was boiling it down and using it to run his vehicles. Uh, yes. He actually was prosecuted for that. I guess that's an Ill- illegal thing. But so the book is filled with all these crazy things. There's also a cartoon in front of each chapter that's uh, very sarcastic, and it, it is a fun read. But it's still got about nine. Uh, it's got over 900 notes. And it gives people the full story. If if you want to, uh, uh, you know, if you have a, a gas stove or a gasoline car or you use electricity, you need to know what uh, your leaders have in store for you. And you need to push back a little bit um, toward more sensible policies.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very good point, Steve, that you take a humorous approach to this issue, because the idea is to scare people. I mean, I we're for uh, twenty years as a school teacher in high schools in the UK, teaching this nonsense about climate alarm, and, and it, I, I had a gutful of it. And the the impact on our children is is very very sad because again, yeah. young people, literally young people, are uh, com, com committed to not having children of their own. They're literally that afraid. Um, some are not even pursuing careers because they they see no point in getting educated. We are creating a generation of disaffected youth who you know, look at the climate as a. As a disaster scenario, that's all human inflicted. And uh, your good self and uh, people like us, we try and show the full picture. The full picture is actually not doom and gloom at all, is it?
2: It's very, very sad what is going on, as you say. And, hey, you know, we may have actual, we may have some cooling for a couple of decades. Predicting future temperatures is very, very difficult. We've had many warm and cold periods in the past. And uh, you know, if we get a couple couple decades of cooling, it's going to be very, very uh, difficult to explain uh, why the planet isn't warming, why we aren't causing it. And uh, who knows? the 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 uh, young folks uh, may have to find uh, different crusades. Maybe in the future they'll be out there tearing down wind turbines like they're trying to tear down dams today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah. just have to see. But. But uh, uh, this is uh, the world is very very misguided right now and needs to get back to sensible policies.
1: Yeah, and it's good that uh, you've got the facts, Steve. As you say, you're a wealth of knowledge on it, on on the numbers. And I, and I think that if you boil it down, there's the two metrics I keep repeating to people. Again, you you covered it yourself. You know, the the temperature rise over the last hundred years or so is literally one degree, and nope. sea level rise is two millimeters a year, which is insignificant. Again. We've made the Very point small. in other shows. This is totally in accord with natural changes, isn't it? We're coming out of an ice age. We've seen melting of the ice cores for 10 12,000 years, haven't we?
2: Yeah, and the, and the, the only uh, rational response to global warming is adaptation. It's not mitigation. Thinking that you can build wind turbine towers to stop carbon dioxide emissions, uh, to stop uh, global temperatures from rising, to stop ice caps from uh, melting, to stop oceans from rising. Uh, it, it's just not going to happen in anybody's reasonable lifetime. The, the, the proper solution is what Netherlands has done for many, many years. You build seawalls, you build islands, and they've done that for centuries now to to keep the ocean back. Uh, if, if, if you want people to have more uh, more protection from hurricanes, in the Caribbean, you boost the income of, of nations and people so they can build strong con- concrete structures. Uh, thinking you're gonna drive electric cars so the hurricanes are gonna stop or slow down. I mean, that's that, that's that's uh, akin to superstition. And so the, the, uh, again, Africa is another example. 40% of the people in Africa, uh, I think it's only one in 20 that has air conditioning and 40% of the people don't even have a fan. Uh, they need low cost energy uh uh so that they can so that they can help survive the heat um thinking that you're you're going to uh uh put up solar cells everywhere and, and help the people in africa that just doesn't make any sense
3: yeah.
1: and the, the other important point is the the general lifting of the human st- standard of living across the board over the last 150 200 years the industrial revolution has lifted us most people in the West out of poverty and diseases, life-threatening diseases, famine, these are things of the past. And again, as you pointed out, agriculture has benefited, manufacturers benefited, medicines have benefited. Uh, It's a win-win, isn't it, Steve?
2: Yeah, it really is. Uh, uh, There are international statistics showing that uh, deaths from disasters are down 98%. Uh, Famine, very similar. Our our, uh, farmers have done a tremendous job producing food back in the early 1900s, we had about 10 uh, million people that would die every decade from famines. Uh, That's down uh, to a very, very small amount, um, maybe a few tens of thousands in a decade now. Uh, So, uh, and the other thing is, if you use, uh, if you use, uh, uh, if you look at uh, lifespans, if you look at education levels, if you look at the the, uh, reduction in infant mortality, uh, all of those things are very highly <clears throat> correlated with with uh, higher energy use and higher hydrocarbon energy use. And so we need to continue those for developing nations so they can grow. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, the, it's it's almost, you know, if I want to make any bet with those people that, that were at uh, Dubai, I will bet them that CO2 emissions are going to continue to rise for the next at uh, least couple decades. decades. Uh, we just have tremendous amount of people in the developing world that need, need uh, hydrocarbon fuels, and they're going to use them, too. Do you yeah, a I'd like to just, about- uh, sorry, Joe, I mean, I, 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 gentlemen, both of you, I'd like to ask you
1: both, if you had a choice, I mean, if you could fix, you know, or, or choose an optimum level of CO2 for the atmosphere, where would you choose it to be?
2: Well, we I don't know that we could do that anyway. Uh, an advisor of mine, Will Happer, a scientist at Princeton, uh, says he wants more and more CO2. If CO2 is good. Uh, he points out that that uh, we're actually currently, if you look at, at geologic history, at pretty low levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide, about 400 parts per million, that's that's four molecules in every 10,000. Uh, in Earth's distant, distant past, it was uh, five or six times higher the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that was even during ice ages. Mm. Uh, so plants need CO2, um and uh if if we were if we were about half of where we are now they wouldn't have enough to grow uh so so uh more is probably better in those cases
3: yeah we yeah we absolutely agree with that in fact we should have a program to simply get on with burning all the available hydrocarbons i mean maybe we can do it more efficiently i mean if they're worried about it yeah they want to do all these crazy insane economic changes you know we're talking about the ev market which is simply not workable why not simply focus on making the internal combustion engines more efficient? That can be done. You can probably make those several times or even a few percent more efficient is going to help. Why isn't research being done into into something so simple as that?
2: Yeah, and even even hybrids have a, a very bad name. Most of the countries in Europe and when these bans go into effect, they say they don't want they don't want anything with an internal combustion engine, which includes hybrid cars which seemed to me to be a pretty smart idea you get the the distance of uh of uh using gasoline or diesel and you get the uh, efficiency of of the electric motor to help your gas mileage and for for short-term trips um yeah it's uh you know it's just crazy crazy stuff
1: yeah Yeah, another another question that puts you both again is uh We talked about the question of how much CO2 is a good level. What would you say with the optimum level of the temperature of the planet? Would you pick a temperature for the planet? Again, another kind of uh, purely nonsensical question, but it has to be posed, doesn't it? If we're talking about uh, the dangers of rising uh, temperatures, what would be the optimum temperature of the planet?
3: That's a good question, because if you can't define that, and you can't define that, right? You cannot actually define that. So if you can't define that, then... What is what exactly are all these policies of, about changing the temperature change all, all about? And they're about nothing, right? Since you can't actually define that answer. That's such a good point, John. What do
2: you think? Well, about and again, stuff? again, there's a lot of uh, a lot of crazy headlines. We had, uh, for example, uh, this summer there was a headline in, in the uh, in Fortune magazine: July could be the hottest month in mm-hmm. 120,000 years. And one scientist uh, put out a paper claiming that. And that was trumpeted in all of our news media, CNN and uh, AP and others. But it's just flat out wrong. Uh, we know that it has been warmer in the past. There have been um, uh, many long periods when it was warmer than today uh, in the last 10,000 years. And there are many, many examples of that. Uh, for example, there's a glacier called the Mendenhall Glacier uh, that's near Juneau in a Southeast Alaska, Western uh, Canada. And environmentalists used to put up pictures of the Mendenhall in 1880 when it was very big. And in uh, and current day, when it's gotten much smaller, it's been shrinking for a century or so. But scientists went down inside the glacier into ice caves about eight years ago. They were from Southeast Alaska University, found some interesting things, including uh, tree trunks that were still stuck in the ground. They were about a foot in diameter. They had the roots in the ground. They found not just one, but many such tree trunks. And they radiocarbon dated them and they were 1000 years old. And so the evidence shows that 1000 years ago, where the Mendenhall Glacier was, we had a forest. And today we have an ice field. Again, evidence that it was naturally warmer 1000 years ago than it is today. So Earth's temperatures vary. They're driven by natural factors. Uh, Man-made emissions play a very small role.
1: Yeah. And and to frame it even better, I'd like to just refer to the first, the very first IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, back in 1995, where they actually permitted a graph to show the medieval warm period. And it showed a distinct lump. So, again, back then, before everything became completely corrupted, there was an acknowledgement that there are periods in history warmer than today. We talk about uh, the Holocene Optimum. Maybe two or three degrees warmer. The Roman Warm Period again. Maybe two degrees warmer. Um, we had the Little Ice Age, didn't we? The Little Ice Age, going back, uh, you know, two hundred years or so. That was the period when we we're emerging from that, aren't we? Still emerging from that cold
2: period, Steve. Yeah, we are. Used to uh, used to uh, the Thames River used to freeze every year in London. They had a thing called the Frost Fest. Uh, they'd build uh, sheds right out on the uh, frozen river and have a festival. Uh, you can't do that today. It, the Thames hasn't frozen solid at London for more than a century. So there are there are many, many cycles and many, many periods of warming and cooling, uh, everything from the ice ages to the the, uh, the shorter uh, thousand-year periods to even El Nino, southern oscillation, and the these temperature cycles in the ocean, which have been going on all the time. These are one or two degree changes. And uh, what your neighbor's sport utility vehicle does uh, really is small in comparison. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We're moving into the last minute or two of the show, Steve. and I just want to round things up neatly with you, if I can. I just, just sum up where you think we're moving generally as, as a you know group of nations. You know, 197 nations were talking about this climate conference. As you said, yeah. uh, over 80,000 delegates, the biggest ever number of people uh, congregating to talk at the Church of Global Warming. Um, where do you th- see it going in a year or two or more?
2: Well, I think uh, maybe the green breakdown is happening a little bit early. We're already seeing some effects. We have talked about the electric vehicle speed bump uh, off the east, east Coast of the United States. About half of the companies that are trying to put in offshore wind have pulled out because it's just too expensive in terms of uh, the interest rates and the costs. Uh, in the United Kingdom, they just held a, a uh, onshore auction uh, the UK government going to do? They're going to raise the price seventy <laughs> percent and to get some bidders. In the UK, uh, Siemens Wind was just bailed out to the tune of ten a billion euros by the German government because they're losing money. And if you if you look at the renewable energy companies over the last three years, all of those stocks have been declining. All of the renewable energy indexes. So I think uh, you know we're starting to see uh, some cracks in the facade. Uh, Europe as well uh uh net zero is becoming a hated word in the united kingdom and and we have a lot of people pushing back against the policies i think people are going to return to low-cost reliable energy and uh and market-based uh numbers so uh, yeah. we just hope that happens sooner rather than later
1: yeah steve it's uh, very very helpful and to have your perspective you're an expert uh, environmental analyst and uh Anybody to check out your work can go to SteveGorham.com and uh, you know look into what you do to advance the rise of sanity in the global debate. Steve Gorham, uh, thank you for joining us on Sky Dragon Slaying. This is TNT Radio.
2: Thank you, John.